The story is infamous. Nintendo and Sony agree to make an add-on for the Super Nintendo together. The plans get put into motion, and on the day that Nintendo is set to reveal their project to the world, they announce a joint venture with the Philips Corporation instead. It's the Great Betrayal. But is it true? Today, we're going to look at the creation of the Sony PlayStation, which began as this project between Nintendo and Sony, and yes, there's some weird stuff going on in it. As part of its story, we'll teach you also about the early history of the Sony Corporation. So stick around and join us as we revolutionize technology on today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 171st episode of our video game history podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, a console, a person, just something that I make relevant to this week in some way that has to do with video games. Promise you it's not that complicated. Well, telling you each story we hope to teach you something new about the topic what it took from the world as its inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy today we're all going to finally learn about the sony playstation originally released in japan on december 3rd 1994 i'm david casson and as always i'm joined by my co-host who is always inventing weird stuff in his basement he's my brother rob casson rob What's your latest invention? Well, Dave, it's pretty weird. It's a remote controller, but for things that fly. Yeah. Like a drone? I mean, if or it flies. Fly? A paper airplane control? Just whatever your imagination can be, Dave. Okay. Okie dokie. So, what you been playing? Well, Dave, this week has seen a little bit of RuneScape, some Farming Sim, and Valheim. How about yourself? Valheim, Dave the Diver, and Slay the Spire. Yeah, that's it. I don't think I've played anything else. Haven't heard of that last one. Slay the Spire? It's only one of the, like, the best deck building roguelites ever created it's not it's not new i've had it for a while it's a game that i go to every so often just for fun it's a if you're into roguelites well i mean like i said it's a card based deck building roguelite there's no other way to describe it it's fantastic so it's something that's really easy to like pick up play around and put down and i was i don't know i wanted to play it so Sounds pretty awesome. It is. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Enough. Enough. We have video games to play. Talk about? No. Yeah, that too. In case you don't know, Rob and I play video games after recording every week. So, you know, and really, we just rush through this to go play video games. What he said. 
It's like getting your homework out of the way so you can go play games. Yeah. Yeah. And it's from home. It's work. So it is. It's you, a you home, never it's really a, stop. It's a lot, a lot of work. A Sorry, kids. Hate to break it to you. Never ends. Masaru Ubuka and Akio Morita both served in the Imperial Japanese Navy during World War II. In doing so, they met as colleagues in the Navy's Wartime Research Committee in a study group for developing infrared guided bombs. When the war was over, just about over, in September of 1945, Ibuka founded a workshop on the third floor of a bombed-out department store in a business district of Tokyo. This was the Nihanbashi district, which was pretty much razed to the ground when the Americans bombed Tokyo in what's still considered the single largest air raid in history. I think it was in March of 1945 when they raised Tokyo to the ground. Not relevant to the story, but you know me, I like I like historical tangents. That you do. The department store building had barely survived to the war fires. The it was still standing, of course. It had cracks all over its concrete exterior. But it was home. So he went there, opened up a workshop in this bombed out department store building. In October, he gave the venture a name. It was called the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute. He and others, they were all pretty much engineers that had worked for the Japanese military during the war. They all wanted to help rebuild post-war Japan using their engineering knowledge. But no one quite knew at first where they could contribute. They just knew that they wanted, you know, they spent time destroying things per se. And they wanted to give back, you know, on the opposite side of things, helping to rebuild in the aftermath. It was increasingly obvious as time went on in the aftermath of the war that the Japanese people were very hungry for news around the world. Many of them had war-damaged radios. They had radios that had had their shortwave antennas disconnected by the military police, which prevented them from receiving Allied propaganda that was broadcast during the war. And this was preventing the Japanese population from getting news because their radios just weren't capable of receiving them. So, Abuka opened up this workshop and the workshop, workshop, workshop. And so the workshop basically repaired radios and they ended up making shortwave adapters that could turn all these quote unquote media medium wave radios into all wave receivers that would get these news and these broadcasts from afar. It was basically a way of bringing Japan back into the global community because they kind of isolated themselves during World War Two. I mean, the two sides isolated themselves, right? You know, Japan, as we know, was not on the allied side. You know, they were on the Axis side and 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 it changed. Things needed to change, right? Who would have thunk we were getting a history lesson? Who would have thunk we were getting a history lesson? 
their shortwave adapters in particular attracted a lot of attention. And the Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute, their workshop, was featured in the Asahi Shimbun, which is basically one of Japan's oldest and largest daily newspapers. It still operates today. And that article about Ibuka's workshop and what they were doing was read none other by was read by his old research partner, Akio Morita, who wrote immediately back to his friend. Ibuka replied at once. He urged Morita to come to Tokyo and join him. At about the same time, Akio Morita had just been offered a job as a lecturer at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. So he went to Tokyo and they wasted no time getting the gang back together. So the radio business is booming. And as they're making parts for radios, they're repairing radios, they are, you know, just contributing to contributing to the after war efforts in Japan. And as a show of appreciation from people that they were helping, employees of the Institute were often given rice in addition to their service fees. It's like, here, let me pay you with the service fee. Here's a tip of rice. You know, the war things were incredibly rationed. They were only slightly better at this point after the war. And so it said a lot to give what little you had as a show of appreciation in addition to the money that you were paying them. So in an extension of this whole rebuilding normalcy in Japan, the Institute, the workshop, designs this primitive electric rice cooker. And it's basically like these interlocking aluminum electrodes. They're at they're brought together at the bottom of a wooden tub. And that's all it is. Uh, there's no sophistication to it. Whether or not it was successful depended on the kind of rice used, depending on the amount of water. It wasn't a very great product. It often produced under or overcooked rice, but it was a product made made by the workshop nonetheless. Just not a good one, which is important to know that, you know, important to know that you can't always win. I don't know. Their work in communications never wavered. You know, they put out this rice cooker and there were other products that just didn't amount to anything. But it was their work in communications that kind of continued to contribute, continued to gain them success and notoriety and, and, and establish them, you know, do what they wanted to do. Their repair work increased. And as Japan continued to rebuild, radio repair became large orders for vacuum, two volt meters and other related parts. So they basically expanded the business into radio parts and they were getting orders from the government. They were getting orders from local universities. They were getting orders from research facilities. All these people that were looking for parts for communications were looking to this Tokyo Telecommunications Research Institute for their radio communication and equipment needs. So as this happened, it was obvious that this company was growing exponentially and that it needed to evolve into something greater. Now, at this point, they weren't just a little workshop. You know, they had eventually worked their way into a factory and, you know, were producing and building and so on and so forth. 
So on May 7th, 1946, about 20 management, uh, 20 staff members total, including management and staff, attended the inauguration ceremony for the Tokyo Shushin Kyogo, which is basically translates to Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Corporation. We all know how I like to butcher words. Absolutely, Dave. In the company's founding prospectus, Ibuka wrote that the company's purpose of incorporation was... One, to establish an ideal factory that stresses a spirit of freedom and open-mindedness and where engineers with sincere motivation can exercise their technological skills at the highest level. Two, to reconstruct Japan and to elevate the nation's culture through dynamic technological and manufacturing activities. Three, I think it was actually A, B, C, but we're going to go with these points. To promptly apply highly advanced technologies which were developed in various sectors during the war to common households. To rapidly commercialize superior technological findings in universities and research institutions that are worthy of application in common households. To bring radio communications and similar devices into common households and to promote the use of home electric appliances to actively participate in the reconstruction of war damaged communication network by providing needed technology and to produce high quality radios and to provide radio services that are appropriate for the coming new era. Oh, and also to promote the education of science among the general public. That's quite the list. I mean, but it's all, it's all very optimistic. Nice, nice things, right? Yeah. You got a point there. You know, they, they wanted to found a, telecommunications engineering corporation and and they wanted to their idea never faltered right they were a bunch of engineers who wanted to give back to japan and they found a way to do it by helping to rebuild communications which is incredibly important right i mean communications have always been one of the most important things for any civilization and they decided to give back and they wanted to promote this atmosphere of like the flow of ideas and everything, right? Because again, they spent all this time, they spent all this time developing technology to tear things down. And now they wanted to take all those concepts and all that technologies to help build things up. It's a, it's a novel concept, right? Yeah, definitely. So the, the Tokyo telecommunications engineering corporations, Tokyo Tushushin Koyogo, or also known as Totsuko, Totsuka, they create their own magnetic tape recorder, which is really cool. They there's this whole story. I'm not going to go too much into it. Where they basically they did it themselves. Like you hear about all these companies that incorporate technology from other people, but their own development of a magnetic tape recorder, they did it themselves. They went to other companies for help. Like, how do we do things? Like, for instance, they went to makeup manufacturers to learn how to grind the the magnetic material down enough to apply it to tape to make their own, you know, basic tape recorder. So, you know, they went out and they branched out, but they didn't like they didn't have a blueprint. They didn't have a company that they could model after. You know, at the time, there wasn't anyone else with a magnetic tape recorder. That's not true. We had it stateside. But in Japan, there wasn't anyone else. And they basically just said, this is what we're thinking of doing. And they went and they did it. And they came up with the same end result, basically. Which is really novel. Yeah, definitely. 
One day, Ubuka reads an article in an American magazine about the invention of the transistor at Bell Laboratories. At first, he doesn't see any pot potential in the invention, and he dismisses it. A few years later, in March of 1952, he plans a three-month tour of the United States. There, he hopes to learn how to grow his company by observing tape recorder sales and manufacturing in the United States. While he's in the States, he hears that Western Electric, the parent company of Bell Labs, was making the rights for the transistor available for anyone who would pay royalties. And it occurs to him that... You know, he there's a story where he like wakes up one night and he he understands that working on a transistor project is just the kind of project that would challenge all of his amazing engineers back home. Decides that finally the transistor is a worthy concept and and that that's just like it's a new technology. It's cutting edge. No one knows how to refine it. I mean, this is really early on in transistors. When they're still what like wire wrapped, I guess was the first bunch, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, you know I'm not the best on my history of transistors. <laughs> that was one class that I struggled with. Uh, so they're still early on. He's like, this is exactly what I want my people to work on. You know, um, so he finishes his tour of the United States. He stops in Holland. He stops at the Phillips, Corp Phillips Corporation on the way home because he's looking for inspiration because he's kind of feeling like, I don't know if we can do this. You know, I want to grow. I want to globalize. This is my trip. But how? So he takes this tour to where he tours United States assigned to do it. And then he tours Phillips like, OK, I think I can do this when he sees everything. And so it was that roughly about six years after the founding of Totsuko that the company decided to go into transistors which is really just crazy to think about because we're only seven years removed at this point from them being a workshop on the third floor of a burnt out, well, not burnt out anymore, but, you know, a, a basically department store building, you know? It's pretty incredible. There were issues with the licensing, the patents of the transistors. Basically, the Japanese government didn't, they everything had to go through the, the government and they didn't want to make it to happen, but they figured it out. They sort out all the licensing issues and they decided that they were going to take their knowledge of communications and they rushed to apply transistors to the radio industry because, of course, that's where they had all their experience. They wanted to become the first company to produce a transistor radio. Unfortunately, in December of 1954, they got really poor Christmas news. There was an American company called Regency that actually produced the world's first transistor radio. And this was about a month before their own efforts would even produce a working prototype in their lab. Wow. But they finished a prototype. They had a prototype, took it. Marita would take a trip to the U S and the Canada and they would bring, figure out how to find a way to bring their own transistor radio to the North American market. But there was one problem. They knew that Americans couldn't pronounce. I am perfect example. 
They knew the Americans couldn't pronounce either Tokyo Tshushin Kyogo or Totsuko. And they couldn't push or market a product with an unpronounceable name. So they thought about taking their initials and calling themselves TTK, but it was too similar to a Japanese train company called TKK. So they played around with a bunch of concepts, and in the end, they decided on a name that was a mix of two words. The first was the Latin word sonus, which is the root of sonic and sound. And the second word was sunny, 1950s American slang for a young boy. It's called a loan word. This term in Japan was borrowed as the term sunny boys, which in Japanese meant smart and presentable young men. And Marita and Ibuka both saw themselves as smart and presentable young men. So with that, they decided that they would start producing products under a brand name called Sony. In the years to follow, Sony broke into the United States market. And its transistor radios helped usher in a new industry of consumer microelectronics. It became known throughout the world as an innovator in the electronics industry. There are so many recognizable products that they created, many of which that we don't know they created and likely take for granted. In 1960, the Sony Corporation of America was established. That was the same year they released the world's first non-projection type all-transistor portable television. In 1961, they launched the world's first compact videotape recorder. In 1968, they launched the Sony Trinitron television line. It kept Sony on top. They were the largest TV manufacturer in terms of revenue until 2006. 2006, 1968 to 2006, the Trinitron wow. made them the largest television manufacturer. That's insane. In 1971, they released the Umatic system. It was the world's first commercial video cassette format before we actually had VCR. In 1979, they released the Walkman, a cultural icon. In 1981. Yep, right? Thanks to Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't know. Got that right. It's making a comeback. (laughs) At least the original. And volume two. In 1981, they released the world's first compact disc player. In 1991, the first commercial lithium-ion battery. They pushed the technologies of LCD. They pushed the technologies of digital imaging. Sony has just... Sony has just revolutionized electronics. But up until this point in 1991, they had very little to do with the video game industry. We recently talked about their early involvement in gaming a couple episodes ago in 167 when we talked about Twisted Metal. The creator of Twisted Metal, David Jaffe, was hired into Sony Image Soft, which was a publishing studio that was founded by Sony in 1989. It was in the late 80s that Sony kind of decided that they were going to become a media conglomerate. You know, they got into movies, they got into music, they decided that they weren't just going to be an electronics company, they were going to be an entertainment company, because then they could control both sides of it. And so they started investing in all this other stuff, which, as we know, now worked out well for them. 
Sony Image Soft, this publishing studio from the late 80s, was primarily focused on marketing games for Nintendo consoles. Its games were largely video game adaptions of movies that its movie studios creating. You know, the the game movies like Hook, Three Ninjas Kick Back, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Cliffhanger. Sony Image Soft was hiring studios to develop video game adaptions of these movies that were Sony made in Sony Picture Studios and they were the publishing studio of of all these video games, these video game movie adaptions. Here in the late 80s, an engineer at Sony named Ken Kudaragi was watching his daughter play video games when it dawned on him that there was a lot of potential in in video games. You know, this was when the Nintendo Famicom was out and she was into the Famicom. And he wasn't into video games. He was just watching her. You know, by this point, he had been working for Sony for a little over 10 years. He had come in in the mid 70s. During that time, he had worked as an engineer on many successful projects. He was involved in Sony's creation of early LCDs. He was involved in their digital cameras. He had a reputation in the company as an excellent problem solver and a forward thinking engineer. He also had the nickname Crazy Ken because sometimes he was a little overbearing about things. When he came across the Famicom, when the idea dawned to him, per se, video games weren't even a thought on Sony's radar beyond the fact that it was like, hey, we're going to publish these games for our movies, right? The video games weren't the thing. The movies were the thing. The music was the thing. But the video games were not a thing. They were doing exceptionally well, producing many other consumer electronics, and none of the board, no one at Sony, was interested in moving into video games. In fact, they were still seen as toys for a lot of people and Sony at that time. You know, they they perceived Sega and Nintendo as toy companies and not as entertainment companies or video game companies or whatever, however you want to view them at the time. Which is really funny because the toy companies didn't even think video games were toys. Like, there's this whole interesting story that I will definitely have to do an episode on someday about, I, I think for a long time, the video game industry had an identity crisis. So, for whatever reason, even though Sony itself wasn't interested in video games, Ken Kudaragi saw a future in them, being a forward-thinking engineer and all. So when Nintendo started looking around for a company to produce a sound chip for its upcoming Super Famicom, which we know is the Super Nintendo Entertainment System, Ken Kudaragi stepped in and said, I'll do it. Well, Sony will do it. But there was one problem. He never told his bosses, or anyone at Sony for that matter. He knew that he would be told no. So he worked on this sound chip in secret. He produced the SPC 700. It's the chip that actually is in every Super Nintendo and Super Famicom. It. If you go back and you look at reviews of Super Nintendo games and you compare them to their Genesis counterparts, you will frequently see in the comments that the sound is superior on the Super Nintendo version. 
the the chip that Ken Kudaragi made was superior. It made that a selling point of the Super Nintendo over its competition. That's so he, pretty pretty uh, innovative of him and forward thinking. That was pretty probably a good idea. Uh, well, not everyone thought so. You know, when he brought the chip, he made the chip and he brought it to the executives, and they were furious, absolutely furious that he made a deal behind their back. They were furious that he spent time. They were furious that he spent company resources on, I mean, what was probably a toy project to them. And in some multiverse somewhere, there's probably a really dark timeline in which they fired him. But in our timeline, but in our timeline, thankfully, Kudaragi had the confidence of the right person. And in this case, that person was the actual CEO of Sony, Norio Oga. Oga inevitably gave the project a thumbs up. He saved Kudaragi's job. Kudaragi's time with Nintendo went well, obviously. The Nintendo became known for its sound chip, which was, you know, a Ken Kudaragi. I mean, it, it just a Ken Kudaragi. No one else worked on it. And Kudaragi saw the future. And Nintendo was looking to the future. You know, CD-ROM technology was on the rise. This is something that we've covered before in multiple episodes. We've done episodes on Mist. We've done episodes on the Seventh Guest. Both, well, the Mist was recently. Seventh Guest was a little while ago. This period of the early '90s was when CD-ROM technology was on the rise, and Nintendo was considering using the technology in in video games considering was the keyword in general they weren't in favor of it you know this is very early on in the technology and cd drives had a long load time but they had faith in ken kudaragi who was kind of in their air going hey we can do something with cd-rom technology and so they kind of relented and they said okay do your thing and we will see what happens so kudaragi went to work and it said over time that two different devices were prototyped. One was an add-on for their upcoming Super Nintendo s- system, and it was called the SNES CD, which would basically plug into the cartridge drive, be a CD-ROM drive, kind of what the Sega CD turned into, and you could play SNES CDs on it. And the other was a Sony-branded console that could play either SNES CD games or Nintendo cartridges. And this is going to be called the Nintendo PlayStation. That was what they tentatively called it. They now call it the Nintendo PlayStation to distinguish it from the Sony PlayStation. But the PlayStation was going to be the console that played both cartridges and CDs, basically. That would have been pretty crazy. Alternate timelines and all. Yeah, could have been a thing. So they got to work on these prototypes and the two sides sat down to negotiate what this would look like. And the truth is, is that Nintendo didn't see CD-ROM technology as the technology, right? They didn't think it was going to be anything. They didn't put any faith in it. So when it kind of came time to do this, I I think the general gist of it is that uh, like the sense I get is that they just didn't do it in good faith because they didn't think it would amount to anything. So as part of the negotiation, Sony got the rights to create and sell all of the CD-ROM software that would run on this new machine. 
that meant that anything that was CD based on the project, like an SNES CD, they wouldn't have to pay Nintendo any royalties or seek Nintendo's approval for anything made on CD-ROM. This is really important. I want you to hold on to that. That is a very important concept. If there's anything we know about Nintendo, it's that you don't mess with its what, Rob? Stuff. Money. Yeah, right. part of its stuff. I mean, we have covered Nintendo story after Nintendo story. We did the, the stories about the Christian company. Clear, no, not Clearinghouse. <laughs> something tree, wasn't it? Wisdom tree or something? Yeah, wisdom tree. We did wisdom tree and we've done a few others. And the one thing that we always find out is that when someone threatens Nintendo's royalties, Nintendo gets big mad. I mean, big mad. Now, this isn't important yet because, again, I don't think this negotiation was done in good faith. They said, here, make a prototype. We're not realistic about it. Go and do it. Okay, fine. You can have these rights. But it becomes important as we look at what's PlayStation's famous story, the one that's always told over and over and over. You know the one. They show up in the, at the 1991 Consumer Electronics Show with the whole deal, experiencing, you know, expecting to announce a, a joint Sony and Nintendo CD-ROM console. And Nintendo stuns everyone, including Sony, by telling them that they've decided to partner with Philips on the, you know, for the SNES CD. And of course, we've covered that before because the this partnership between Nintendo and Philips didn't amount to the SNES CD. What it amounted to was Philips CDI, which is famously one of the worst consoles ever created. With some of the worst games, definitely the worst Mario and Zelda games ever created. That's a fact. Yeah, those uh, did. They're fantastic. I mean, the best, just the best. So that's a go check them out. Fantastic story, right? The stunning betrayal, you know, where everyone was blindsided. The stunning betrayal that pushed Sony into beating Nintendo to the punch and announcing the Sony PlayStation. I hate to break it to you. It's a great story, but it's not entirely true. The world knew about the Sony Philips deal at least two days before CES. On May 31st, 1991, the Seattle Times posted an article that's titled Nintendo and Philips join in games on CD. So realistically, you know, someone opened up their newspaper two days before CES and found out by the time CES rolled around, Nintendo had obviously already told the media that it planned on going on with Philips as his partner, which means that when Sony announced their press conference for the next day, which was June 1st, 1991, that was the, the press conference in which they announced their, Sony slash Nintendo PlayStation device, they were already aware that a day later, Sony was, or Nintendo rather, was going to announce uh, that they were going to go with Philips on it. So yes, Nintendo gets on that stage on June 2nd, 1991. Famously announces that they're going to be partnering with, with Philips Corporation instead of Sony. And yes, it was a great betrayal. So as the story goes, when the president of Nintendo got wind of the deal that was created, that was negotiated, 
in that Sony got all the royalty rights to the CD-ROMs, he was angry. And he basically told his people, go to Philips and get a deal because we are not giving Sony control over all the royalties of this project. So, as always, don't mess with Nintendo's money. Ever. You will get crushed or betrayed or whatever. Yep, that's the truth. This was definitely looked down upon by the Japanese business community. You just don't go back on your contracts in that culture. But it wasn't a surprise. It was a betrayal, but it wasn't a blind side like it's told in some stories. And it didn't completely nix the SNES CD. In all honesty, there was always a possibility that we would still get a Sony Nintendo SNES CD after that. The project still existed after the Great Betrayal. You know, most of 1992, there was this kind of will he, won't he vibe. Information about the SNES CD was very limited, but it was found in gaming publications. Officially, they never announced any games for it. But we do know, for instance, now that Nintendo paid a million dollars to license the seventh guest, which we covered in episode 83. That's a license they never used. We know through Cyan Worlds that they tried to license. I don't know if it was missed, but they had another game they tried to license. So it, it was kind of obvious that Nintendo was going to try to port these early popular CD-ROM great games over to the SNES CD. And we also now know in hindsight that there are some really great Super Nintendo games like uh, Secret of Mana, which we talked about, I don't know, episode one or two before we were even a history podcast <laughs> and Chrono Trigger. Chrono Trigger, which we covered, I think, in episode 50, they were both supposed to be SNES CD-ROM drives and Secret and Mana in particular uh, had to have its content cut down to fit it onto a cartridge when it became obvious that there was never going to be a Super SNES CD expansion. Someone at Sony said that they were cutting ties. It was announced that they were severing ties with Nintendo in May of 1992. In June, the CEO chaired a board meeting, brought in several senior board members and Ken Kutaragi, and the meeting was about the future of the PlayStation project. So basically, Kutaragi, again, the general idea between the board of Sony was that video games weren't a thing. Like, no joke. They saw Sega and Nintendo as toy companies. They had no interest in getting into toys. This this was not something that they were seriously considered. So in general, the board was against the PlayStation project. But Kudaragi walked in and he reminded Oga of how humiliating CES 1991 was to Sony. And he kept doing so until Oga was so enraged that he gave him the green light to continue the PlayStation project and show them up. On October 14th, 1992, the day before Sega releases the Sega CD in the United States, Nintendo and Sony announced that they had mended fences and that Sony would now be collaborating with Nintendo and Philips on the SNES CD add-on. So here we are, like, again, will he, won't he, right? Yeah, what the heck? In an Associated Press article, it was announced that 
The agreement also allows Nintendo and Sony to license other companies to develop, manufacture, and sell disc software, with all licensing activity going through Nintendo. See? Give Nintendo their money back and all is well in the world. So apparently, this agreement was made by some of Sony's board, the old guard, so to speak. They didn't want to compete against Nintendo. They saw Nintendo as a gorilla of the games industry, even though they were a toy company, and they didn't want to compete against them. And so they thought that the PlayStation project was basically going to be a failure. They didn't stand a chance against Nintendo. So they negotiated a deal. But by then, the reality of the situation was the PlayStation project was in full force. And even though they negotiated a deal, the SNES CD-ROM never really happened. You know, it, it's, it, it's kind of like Nintendo's most famous vaporware. That was October of 1992. We know in hindsight that in early 1993, they were already working on a replacement for the Super Nintendo. You know, they were negotiating with Silicon Knights for their workstations that became the basis of the Nintendo 64. They had already decided that the Nintendo 64 was going to be cartridge based. And as they dove into the next gen of consoles, any idea for an add on to the Super Nintendo just kind of melted away. You know, it's crazy to think that they held out on CDs for so long because it wasn't until the GameCube and even still it was only what the GameCube Wii and Wii U that used discs and then they went back to cartridges. Yeah. And they never even really adopted CD-ROMs, right? They adopted their own like, I mean, they're CD-ROMs, but they're like the tiny media. Well, only for the GameCube. I thought That's the other true. two. That's true. You're right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. The, the Wii and the Wii you do use full size. You're right. DVDs. I guess I was thinking like when they first adopted, they still refused to adopt CD-ROMs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now that was hilarious. <clears throat> so, yeah. So the Super Nintendo CD add-on just kind of went away. So did any concept of a a you know Nintendo a Sony branded Nintendo PlayStation console but the PlayStation project never stopped in October of 1993 Sony officially announced that they were entering the video game market they unveiled the Sony PlayStation to the world you know but Sony wasn't Nintendo Sony wasn't Sega you know their only notion of video games was sony image soft that publishing company that they had created in the late 80s they had absolutely no video game development experience whatsoever so it's one thing to have the hardware down which i mean ken kudaragi is a very great engineer there was no doubt you know the when he walked in the meeting the chips you know he had the technological specifications already in mind like not completely but you know he's like hey we can do x y and z with this we're going to make a system that's going to play games with 3d graphics that's what he walked into the into the the meeting and basically was like this is what we're going to do and here's how we're going to do it i think i can create a chip that does 1 million computations mips mips Mips, isn't it? Mips, lips, Mips. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. 
So Sony had no experience in video game development. They had to rely completely on the support of third-party developers. Well, now, now I'm cra- not crazy. Uh, PlayStation. Millions of instructions per second. I don't know why I couldn't think of that acronym. MIPS. Well, that's pretty crazy. And it the mate the the it ended up doing thirty mips. I was like exaggerating. I guess I had millions stuck in my head from the word mips. But that was like when they're talking about talking about that board meeting. The concept of mips came up because he was trying to wow them with I can build a chip that could do all these calculations, you know, way more than anything has done before, and and it's going to let us build video games with 3D like 3D presentation which is something the world has never seen that's the gist of it gotcha so yeah Sony no game development experience has to find third party developers they go out there and they start negotiation negotiation yeah they start negotiation they secure relationships with Namco they secure relationships with Konami Williams Entertainment roughly 250 development teams in Japan. They get the support of by December of 1993. A few months later, they knew that Ridge Racer was going to be the PlayStation's first game. Namco was thrilled to have an identity to show up. Sega Namco and Sega were competing very heavily in the arcade market. And, you know, Sega had their console, but Namco didn't have a good foothold. So Namco was kind of looking for that leg up. In fact, the Namco System 11 board, arcade board, was based on the preliminary specifications for the Sony PlayStation, which is why arcade ports, quote unquote, of games that were created on System 11, games like Tekken and Soul Edge, feel like faithful adaptions because they're basically the same hardware. In 1993, Sony purchased Cygnosis. Cygnosis becomes Sony's first in-house development team. And Cygnosis actually played a very important role in the development of the PlayStation. So to all the video game developers and all these teams that had, you know, they negotiated in support of the PlayStation and we're going to develop software for the PlayStation. Sony had provided these Sony, they were called news. I forgot what the acronym is. I'm not even going to look this one up. But that was like the brand name. They're basically Sony branded workstation computers. Now workstation computers are like commercial heavy duty, like big, expensive computers. They're not ordinary computers. They're they're not supercomputers. They're a class in between, right? And Sony was giving these workstations to all these companies to develop on. But workstation computers are expensive. And that made the cost of this very expensive, very expensive for Sony, very expensive for developers that want to get into it, that were purchasing their own equipment in tandem, uh, stuff like that. So Zygnosis goes to another company called SN Systems. SN Systems had previously made PC-based development kits for the Mega Drive, for the Atari, for the Super Nintendo even. And they asked them if they could take what they know about the PlayStation as, as an in-house developer and can you make a PlayStation development kit? So SN Systems does just that. Cygnosis arranges a meet and greet between Sony and SN Systems. At the meeting, Sony is presented with a condensed development kit 
It could basically run a development kit for the Sony PlayStation on an ordinary personal computer with two extension boards installed. And that was it. Sony was impressed. It was way cheaper to, to develop. Psygnosis helped Sony find a cheaper and more efficient way of developing software for the PlayStation. And they got a lot of business. Psygnosis ended up, or Sony rather, ended up ordering like 600 of these dev kits from SN Systems. And wow. and it was way better than 600 of the co- The cost was way better than 600 of the workstation computers. So. And really, everyone just got to work at that point. You know, technical specifications for the Sony PlayStation were in place by the end of 1993. The design of it was finalized like early 1994, and it was unveiled to the world in a press conference on May 10th, 1994. They got it released in Japan on the 3rd of December, 1994, 29 years ago, and we got it here stateside on the 9th of September, 1995. And that's how we got the PlayStation. And thank goodness we did. I know it's look, we talk about PlayStation, PlayStation games all the time. Uh, You can go through our library of episodes and see numerous games are on a PlayStation. But I was as I thought repeatedly, one of the things in hindsight that I wish we would have done on more console episodes was talk about launch titles, because I think it's really easy to talk about games in the entirety of the lifespan of the system but I think it's really interesting to see what people were excited for when it launched, which I don't really remember doing with a lot of these, you know, I don't think that we have, but that is definitely something that uh, is interesting. So when the PlayStation came to Japan of December in December of 94, you could buy the following games. You could buy a railway business sim called a train Four. you could buy a role playing first person shooter based on a science fiction manga called crime crackers. There was a like series of cute shoot 'em ups, like a compilation of shoot 'em ups that were kind of cute in nature called Paradis, which is literally a parody of Gradius. There was a couple of Mahjong games. They got Ridge Racer, which was like the one. You got a game called Niketsu Oyako, which was a side scrolling beat 'em up, kind of like Final Fight. And you got a game called Tama which was like Marble Madness where you rolled a ball through a maze. So really, like, if we're looking at games that have stood the test of time, Ridge Racer, I mean, the A-Train series is still around, but really it's Ridge Racer, right? Like, that's the game everybody knows. Sure. Let's go with that. No, you don't know Ridge Racer? I do not. I did not recognize a name that you said there. I, I well, obviously I played the Mahjong, but. So when we finally got the PlayStation a year later in North America, we had a few more games. We got an ESPN Extreme Games, which was like skateboarding and um, I don't know, other extreme sports. We got the first Ace Combat. Battle Arena Tashiden, which is a fighting game. We got a first person shooter called Kalik, the DMA Imperative. We got a space flight simulator called Total Eclipse Turbo. We got NBA Jam Tournament Edition. We covered NBA Jam in episode 85. Go check that out. We got a tennis game called Power Serve 3D Tennis. There was a scrolling shooter called The Raiden Project. There was the first Rayman. There was Ridge Racer, which is a racing game. Ridge Racer was like my first, the first game I ever remember drifting in. That's what I remember Ridge Racer for. 
And then we got Street Fighter the movie, which was a fighting game based on the 1994 movie. And of course, the movie was based on the, the video game. It, it's confusing. It, they basically made Street Fighter, but they used digital versions of the movie character. So it's like Gene called Van Damme and Street Fighter. It's bad. So, yeah, so it sounds were... like a good concept, but yeah. <laughs> it was not. So there were there were there were more games. But I mean, realistically, Ridge Racer was like the showcase title for the system when it came out. We know now that the PlayStation did well, right? It was the most successful console of the fifth generation. Sony has remained consistently on top in terms of console sales in our current generation of consoles, the PlayStation 5 outsells the Xbox 2 to 1. Literally, they've sold 40 million PS5s and 21 million Xbox series, whatever your choice is. Wow. Right? Did not realize that. Didn't Actually, know I'm not surprised. Well, so we are Xbox people. Let's not let's not debate that. I mean, for me, I'm an Xbox person at least. Mostly because, like, that's my ecosystem, right? I love Xbox Play Anywhere because as a PC gamer, the Xbox integrates with that environment very well. I can play games on both my Xbox and my PC. I can play them on one and then pick up right where I left off in the same spot on the other flawlessly. And they don't really have the ability to do that on the PlayStation in the same way. So, So me, I'm an Xbox person. Not that I don't like PlayStation. I have a PlayStation. I basically only play PlayStation exclusives on it. PlayStation exclusives are fantastic. I just there's no beating around that. So I don't have any problem with PlayStation. But it is it is the it is winning the console war at the moment. You know, the PlayStation made Ken made Ken Kutaragi a household name. You know, in two thousand four which would have been PlayStation, what, 2 era. He was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He became the CEO of SCEA, Sony Computer Entertainment America, in 1997. And then he became chairman of the entire Sony Computer Entertainment Group, SCEI, Sony Computer Entertainment Incorporated, uh, became chairman of the entire SCEI group in 2006. A year later, he retired and took up the role of honorary chairman. He ended up giving that up in 2011. Sony was going through some restructuring and he gave up his chairmanship. Mostly honorary chairman did at the time. And there has been a few other ventures that he's done in the years since. He was um, CEO of another video game company. I can't remember the name of it right now. But fast forward to now, since 2020, He has been the CEO of AI and robotics startup Ascent Robotics, which is a robotics company based out of Tokyo. So now now he's in control of of, um, our future. Right on. When when Skynet, when Skynet comes to to enslave us all, Ken Kudaragi will be okay because he's at the helm. Well, hopefully he does right by the rest of us. I hope so. So. Yeah, the Sony PlayStation, you know, it's influential. It's very well. Sony as a company is influential and most everything they did, they get right, except for that first rice cooker. 
True. That's not true. So there's another interesting story. So when they first incorporated to Tetsuko, they were trying to find ways to make money and they made these like seat warmers, which is really just like wires between two two things of cloth. You, I, that, there's no other way to put it. That's what it was. And like they I don't know if they were trying to make it cheap or they just weren't very good at making things that weren't radios, but they didn't do anything with it. Like they made it as basic as possible. So there were no safeguards or anything. And nice. A lot of burnt butts. A lot of burnt butts. In fact, like their stories, they didn't even put their name on it. They sold it under a different name because employees were embarrassed of it because they themselves were like burning through their trousers while like using it. So, (laughs) so Sony doesn't do everything well. Of course, we know beta. They tried to do beta and, and failed that VHS one on that one. So true that. But yeah, it's really interesting how a radio company, I mean, and there's a lot more to it. We try to condense everything into an hour, so it, it's really hard to tell all these stories. But there's a whole lot to the history of Sony. There's a whole lot to this whole will he, won't he the, in this, this intro of the Sony PlayStation. It's a, a lot of really fascinating stuff. But the, the end result is that Sony is our overlord. And they've been creating most of the consumer electronics we've been buying for years and years and years. So, and yay, now, Sony. And now they run the now they run the video game industry. So they run it all, Dave. <laughs> I know. I know. But, you know, along the way, there were a lot of other things involved, you know, things that we talked about, like the seventh guest we did an episode on. And what else did we talk about that we did an episode on? You know, we talked about Ridge Racer. Didn't we talk about Ridge Racer in the last episode when I talked about that whole full, like the arcade that was made of the whole car, the Mazda Miata, the whole car? I think that was a Ridge a Ridge Racer arcade title. So there are all these uh, NBA Jam, for instance, episode 85. If you want to go check out any of these episodes that are in our back catalog, of course, you can do so. Our podcast is available anywhere that you listen to your podcast. You can also find it our whole archive by going to our website, which is www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, you can find a calendar of future episodes. You can find links to things such as our Discord, where you can come hang out with Dave and I, talk video games, or whatever else you got on your mind. You can find links to things such as our Patreon, where for a few dollars you can help support us and get access to unedited and ad-free episodes. And you can also find links to our social media, where I am on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we tell you a story about something relevant to the current week in gaming history. This week, it was the Sony PlayStation, which was released uh, 1994, what, 29 years ago? Math. Math. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, which was in this case Sony PlayStation, what it took from the world as inspiration or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Every week when we do research for these episodes, we learn things and then we get to teach them to you. There's this fantastic cycle of learning and teaching and a recognition of how awesome it is. We like to talk about our takeaways every week. So Rob, what did you learn today? 
Well, Dave, I didn't really ever think about just how large Sony was and the firsts of things that they did. And just, I mean, we talked about a lot of things that they did and just it's like, holy crap, they're huge. But it's just it's crazy to know that they got a start by making a not great rice cooker. <laughs> like from that to the PlayStation, it's just like, holy crap, man, you guys got some good people on your team because who made a comeback. That's exactly right. The rice, co- rice cooker could have been the end of them. Different timelines, different timelines, indeed. So that's it for me. How about yourself? Similar. You know, I, I had known that the story of the Sony PlayStation's history is pretty well documented. There were little surprises in there for me, but I never really paid attention to where Sony came from. So to know to learn that it got started as this little department store workshop after World War Two that made radio equipment, repaired radios and then made radio equipment and to learn how it it grew like it's just so cool. They were in a bubble and they were doing what everyone else was doing. And it reminds me a lot of the video game industry, right? You know, we've talked about that concept time and time again to where these early game developers, they didn't have anyone else to go to. They didn't have game engines. They didn't have game tools like we all have nowadays. They were creating the tools to do the job as they were going along. And you see this in the history of Sony to where like literally they're like, okay, we know that we want to create a magnetic tape technology, which is becoming a thing. And we know this is kind of how you do it. And they just worked it out. Like they, they literally just, they worked it out. They figured it out on their own. They didn't, they didn't have anyone else to hold their hand, you know? And I just think that's so cool and such a, an attestment to how smart all those engineers were at the time. Like they were probably some of Japan's best and brightest that were figuring this out because literally the Sony transistor radio, like it was the thing. Like when they brought it to stateside, it became the most popular transistor radio. Like they basically, it wasn't an exaggeration. I think I said in an article, they ushered in a whole age of consumer microelectronics with that transistor radio. And they just never let their foot off the pedal realistically. So it is crazy. It's they're huge. It's you don't really think about it. But when you really stop to. It's like, damn, Sony controls the world I know. right behind Nintendo. Well, arguably they're they're gonna I'd have to look at them, but they're, they're both doing pretty good. Crazy crap. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Well, we've been at this for about an hour, and that's about where we try to can it each week. We go over once in a blue moon, but we try not to. We value your time. Try to keep these stories as succinct as possible. But before I look ahead to next week, because it's that time, Rob, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, I do have to take one quick moment to say thank you all so much for listening. It means the world to us, and we really appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you indeed. All right. Next week, we're going to take a look at the beginning of one of the largest mobile game franchises in the world. 
It's now a media conglomerate. There are video games. There's a television series. There are television series, rather. And there are movies, plural of each of them. But in the beginning, Angry Birds was just a character mm. sketch with no clear idea on what to do with it or where to go from there. As part of its story, we'll look at how this sketch evolved into the games and the characters that we know today. And we'll also take a look at the history of its development studio, which is Rovio. So, stick around and join us as we fly with the birds on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do be doom da 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 do do.